Upwork has the world's largest network of independent professionals. So if you need a go-to designer, a video editor, or a social media specialist for six days or six months, Upwork is how. And it's basically like they're right here in your office. Except they're not here here, so they can't hear Greg's remarkably loud typing. Hey, buddy! I take it back. You can hear that from anywhere. And Upwork professionals are proven, rated, and reviewed. When you need in-demand talent on demand, Upwork is how. I'm Zani Minton Beddoes, The Economist's Editor-in-Chief. Welcome to Editor's Picks. Each week, we select three of the defining stories from the paper. We think they're essential pieces of insight and analysis that will help inform you on the go. You can listen to them in just a moment. Now, over to one of my colleagues to tell you what's coming up. Thanks, Annie. It's Thursday, the 28th of November, 2019. I'm Josie Delap, The Economist's international editor. Our cover story this week examines the claim that growing inequality is not what it appears. We report on new research that delves deep into the national accounts of various countries to tease out the income and wealth of the top 1% and trends in average wages and in how owners out-earn workers. In each case, the growth in inequality is either smaller than most people think or possibly absent. That many claims made about inequality are debatable does not reduce the urgency of tackling economic injustice. But good policy starts with good data. Next, Britain's Labour Party plans to redistribute political power as well as income. That is more dangerous than it sounds, says our Badger columnist. And finally, in Mexico, President Andrés Manuel López Obrador is using a crusade against corruption to take control and cow critics. That's just a sample of the stories on offer in the paper. With a subscription, you can read or listen to all of what we do, so please subscribe. Go to economist.com slash radio offer to get your first 12 issues for $12 or £12. That's economist.com slash radio offer. First up, inequality. Gaps in wealth and income could be lower than you think, but there is still plenty to do to make economies fairer. Even in a world of polarisation, fake news and social media, some beliefs remain universal and central to today's politics. None is more influential than the idea that inequality has risen in the rich world. People read about it in newspapers, hear about it from their politicians and feel it in their daily lives. This belief motivates populists who say selfish metropolitan elites have pulled the ladder of opportunity away from ordinary people. It has given succour to the left who propose ever more radical ways to redistribute wealth and it has caused alarm among business people, many of whom now claim to pursue a higher social purpose lest they be seen to subscribe to a model of capitalism that everyone knows has failed. In many ways, the failure is real. Opportunities are restricted. The cost of university education in America has spiralled beyond the reach of many families. Across the rich world, as rents and house prices have soared, it has become harder to afford to live in the successful cities which contain the most jobs. 
Meanwhile, the rustling away of old industries has concentrated poverty in particular cities and towns, creating highly visible pockets of deprivation. By some measures, inequalities in health and life expectancy are getting worse. Yet precisely because the idea of soaring inequality has become an almost universally held belief, it receives too little scrutiny. That is a mistake, because the four empirical pillars upon which the temple rests, which are not about housing or geography but income and wealth, are not as firm as you might think. As our briefing this week explains, these four pillars are being shaken by new research. Consider first the claim that the top 1% of earners have become detached from everyone else in recent decades, which took hold after the Occupy Wall Street movement in 2011. This was always hard to prove outside America. In Britain, the share of income of the top 1% is no higher than in the mid-1990s after adjusting for taxes and government transfers. And even in America, official data suggest that the same measure rose until 2000 and since then has been volatile around a flat trend. It is easily forgotten that America has put in place several policies in recent decades that have cut inequality, such as the expansion of Medicaid, government-funded health insurance for the poor, in 2014. Now, some economists have re-crunched the numbers and concluded that the income share of the top 1% in America may have been little changed since as long ago as 1960. They argue that earlier researchers mishandled the tax return data that yield estimates of inequality. Previous results may also have failed to account for falling marriage rates among the poor, which divide income around more households but not more people and a bigger chunk of corporate profits may flow to middle-class people than previously realized because they own shares through pension funds. In 1960, retirement accounts owned just 4% of American shares. By 2015, the figure was 50%. The second wobbly pillar is the related claim that household incomes and wages have stagnated in the long term. Estimates of inflation-adjusted median income growth in America in 1979 to 2014 range from a fall of 8% to an increase of 51%, and partisans tend to cherry-pick a figure that tells a convenient story. The huge variation reflects differences in how you treat inflation, government transfers, and the definition of a household, but the lowest figures are hard to believe. If you argue that income has shrunk, you also have to claim that four decades' worth of innovation in goods and services, from mobile phones and video streaming to cholesterol-lowering statins, have not improved middle earners' lives. That is simply not credible. Third is the notion that capital has triumphed over labour, as ruthless businesses owned by the rich have exploited their workers, moved jobs offshore and automated factories. The claim that inequality is being driven by the rich accumulating capital was a central thesis of Thomas Piketty's book, Capital in the 21st Century, which in 2014 made him the first rock star economist since Milton Friedman improbably filled auditoriums in the 1980s. Not all Mr. Piketty's theories caught on among economists, but it is widely assumed that a falling share of the rich world's GDP has been going to workers and a rising share to investors. 
After a decade of soaring stock prices, this has some resonance with the public. Recent research, however, suggests that the decline in labor's fortunes is explained in most rich countries by exorbitant returns to homeowners, not tycoons. Strip out housing and the earnings of the self-employed, which are hard to divide between capital and labor income, and in most countries, labor shares have not fallen. America since 2000 is an exception, but that reflects a failure of regulation, not a fundamental flaw in capitalism. American antitrust regulators and courts have been unforgivably lax, allowing some industries to become too concentrated. This has enabled some firms to gouge their customers and book abnormally high profits. The last pillar is that inequalities of wealth, the assets people own minus their liabilities, have been soaring. Again, this has always been harder to prove in Europe than America, in Denmark, one of the few places with detailed data, the wealth share of the top 1% has not risen for three decades. By contrast, few deny that the richest Americans have sprinted ahead. But even here, wealth is fiendishly difficult to estimate. The campaign of Elizabeth Warren, a Democratic presidential contender, reckons that the share of wealth owned by the richest 0.1% of Americans rose from 7% in 1978 to 22% in 2012. But a plausible recent estimate suggests that the rise is only half as big as this. For connoisseurs, the difference rests on the factor by which you scale up investors' wealth from the capital income they report to the taxman. This imprecision is a problem for politicians, including Miss Warren and Bernie Sanders, who want wealth taxes since they may raise less revenue than they expect. The fact that dubious claims are made about inequality does not reduce the urgency of tackling economic injustice. But it does call for ensuring that the assumptions on which policies are based are accurate. Those, like Britain's Labour Party, who favour the radical redistribution of income and wealth, ought to be sure that inequality is as high as they think it is, especially when their policies bring knock-on costs such as deterring risk-taking and investment. By one estimate, Miss Warren's wealth tax would leave America's economy 2% smaller after a decade. Until these debates are resolved, it would be better for policymakers to stick to more solid ground. The rich world's housing markets are starving young workers of cash and opportunity. More building is needed in the places that offer attractive jobs. America's economy needs a revolution in antitrust enforcement to reinvigorate competition. And regardless of trends in inequality, too many high-income workers, including doctors, lawyers and bankers, are protected from competition by needless regulation and licensing and senseless restrictions on high-skilled immigration, both of which should be loosened. Such an agenda would require governments to take on nimbus and corporate lobbies. But it would reduce inequality and boost growth, and its benefits do not depend on a set of beliefs about income and wealth that could yet turn out to be wrong. What do bioscience and big data have to do with Iowa? More than you probably think. Iowa invites you to discover career opportunities in today's most cutting-edge industries. From startups to establishments, businesses across the state are pairing new technology with daring ideas, investing in bold visionaries, supporting driven doers. 
establishing the workforce of tomorrow today. This is Iowa. Don't limit your dream job to the imagination. Make it happen here. Explore Iowa for yourself at thisisiowa.com. Next, this week's budget on redistributing power. This is an age of political surprises. Donald Trump won the presidential election of 2016 after being treated as a no-hoper. The Brexiteers won their referendum despite being dismissed as cranks. Jeremy Corbyn is now widely seen as a lost cause, particularly after a week in which the chief rabbi accused him of anti-Semitism and a large poll suggested the Tories could win a majority of 68. But history could easily have another surprise up its sleeve. What happens if Mr Corbyn defies expectations and enters Downing Street next month? Most people have focused on the economic consequences. Labour boasts that it will rewrite the rules of the economy and jack up public spending. But just as significant will be the political consequences. The party plans nothing less than what Tony Benn, Mr Corbyn's mentor, called an irreversible shift in the balance of power in favour of the working people. The political revolution is in many ways more central to the Corbyn project than the economic one. Economics is only the means to remaking Britain's political soul. The two most obvious changes will be big increases in the power of the state and of the trade unions, reversing four decades of movement in the other direction. Labour's manifesto bristles with government-powered solutions to every problem. The renationalisation of the utilities, a free state-run British broadband service, a state-run drug company to provide cut-price medicines, a national investment board and a national energy agency, national commissions on food, health, working time, women, pensions and agencies galore. Alongside this, it contains a detailed list of promises to organise labour. The party would roll out sectoral collective bargaining across the economy, remove unnecessary restrictions on industrial action and grant the biggest extension of workers' rights in history. But this is only the beginning. The two great watchwords of Labour thinking are democracy and decentralisation. The manifesto unveils plans for a democratic revolution, reducing the voting age to 16, extending full voting rights to foreign residents, creating a constitutional commission, advised by a citizens' assembly, and a host of other measures to put power in the hands of the people. Democratisation goes hand in hand with decentralisation, to redress the lopsided balance of power between London and the rest of the country, much of this sounds appealing. Britain's version of representative democracy is broken. The political class is held in contempt. Parliament has spent three years deciding nothing. Dozens of MPs, including some of the brightest, are retiring from political life because it is too toxic. And much of the anger that is upending politics is driven by a revolt of left-behind regions against an overmighty capital. Yet Labour's version of people power promises to make a mockery of both democratisation and decentralisation. Two ideas lie at its heart. The first is extending the reign of democracy from the public sphere to the private sphere. John MacDonnell, the Shadow Chancellor, told last year's Labour Party conference that the Labour movement has always believed that democracy should not stop when we clock in at the factory gate, in the office lobby, or like my mum in BHS, a department store, behind the counter. The second idea is handing power to activist groups in local government and in workplaces. 
In practice, this doesn't mean empowering ordinary people. It means handing control to highly motivated activists who are prepared to devote their evenings to passing composite motions. If ordinary folk try to get a look in, they will either be ignored, as Mr Corbyn did when the majority of Labour supporters urged him to take a clear line on remaining in the EU, or shouted down. Some activists think nothing of resorting to bullying, misogyny and racism if they don't get their way, driving dedicated MPs such as Luciana Berger out of the party and turning local party meetings into echo chambers of extremist ideas. The manifesto opens up growing areas of British life to be treated to the same technique that Mr Corbyn has used to take over the Labour Party. Labour plans to force big companies to put 10% of their shares into inclusive ownership funds, managed by employees. It wants to double the size of the cooperative sector with a combination of incentives and subsidies. Mr Corbyn has even suggested that employees should have the power to elect the editors of newspapers and television news programmes. Labour regards activism as a way of subordinating both the state and the business world to the popular will. One of the sacred texts of Corbynism, in and against the state, encourages radicals to get jobs in the public sector in order to turn it into an instrument of social activism and a funder of left-wing causes. Labour's share appropriation plan will make inclusive ownership funds, which will probably be run by worker activists, the biggest shareholders in blue-chip companies such as AstraZeneca, Tesco and Marks and & Spencer. Again, some of this might sound attractive. Too many civil servants live in a Whitehall bubble and too many managers overpay themselves for spouting claptrap. But Mr Corbyn's ideas represent a threat to one of the basic principles of liberalism, that there is a limit to the power of politics. Liberals accept that the business world operates according to the principles of property rights and free exchange, rather than the popular will, and that individuals possess basic rights that cannot be overruled by democratic diktat. Mr Corbyn is having none of that. All this makes Labour's political agenda even more dangerous than its economic plans. It injects politics into every corner of society. It whips up enthusiasm by demonising opponents, the stinking rich, the heartless Tories, and organising supporters into euphoria or rage-fueled rallies. And it feeds on itself. The more opposition it encounters, the more it relies on the sheer force of the people's will. This could be Britain after December 12th. And finally... Mexico's president sees himself, rather than strong institutions, as the bulwark against graft. Since 2003, the boringly named Asset Administration and Disposal Service, or SAE, has sold off cars and houses seized by Mexico's government, mainly from smugglers and tax dodgers. The SAE used to split the proceeds among the police, the judiciary and the health service. Andres Manuel López Obrador, Mexico's president since December 1st last year, has jazzed things up. He now refers to the SAE as the Institute for the Return of Stolen Goods to the People. In June, he promised 25.7 million pesos, that's $1.3 million, from an auction of ill-gotten goods to two poor indigenous villages in the southern state of Oaxaca. At a televised news conference, the president gave giant checks to their mayors. The episode sums up much about the presidency of Mr López Obrador, who is often known as AMLO. It shows his dedication to fighting graft, his flair for political theatre, his indifference to institutions and his belief in the virtue of ordinary people among whom he counts himself. 
to look like they were fighting corruption. Past governments created so many rules, he said at the Czech handover. The two lucky villages will be able to spend the cash as they like, without oversight. Mexicans are an honest people, says the president. Corruption occurs from above, not from the bottom up. His folksy way of fighting corruption is working for him. At a time when citizens across Latin America are rebelling against their leaders, AMLO has an approval rating of nearly 60%. He is right to be preoccupied with corruption. In Transparency International's Corruption Perceptions Index of 180 countries, Mexico shares 138th place with Russia. AMLO's fulminations against Slees and the previous government of Enrique Peña Nieto helped him win a landslide victory in the presidential election in 2018. For AMLO, corruption is not just one of Mexico's biggest problems, but practically its only problem. Eradicate it, and poverty and crime would cease. Honest tax officials would raise so much money that painful fiscal reforms would be unnecessary. Anger at corruption binds AMLO's motley coalition, which ranges from left-wing activists to evangelicals. All believe in his incorruptibility. He cut his salary in half, puts in 16-hour days, and flies commercial. But the Stolen Goods Institute reveals the flaws in AMLO's anti-corruption policy. Rather than building institutions to fight graft, he offers himself as the main bulwark against it. Worse, contend AMLO's critics, he uses the campaign to weaken institutions and opponents. He pounces on his critics' misdeeds and ignores those of his allies. Though untempted by wealth, AMLO is greedy for power. The government's approach to fighting corruption is like setting off fireworks to provide illumination, rather than building an electricity grid, says Denise Dresser, a columnist. Corruption fighters during Mr Peña's scandal-plagued presidency faced reprisals, but they also made headway. Journalists and NGOs, some financed by rich businessmen, uncovered the biggest scandals, including the First Lady's acquisition of a house from a construction firm with government contracts. They capitalised on the uproar to form a movement to create a system to catch the scandals, says Max Kaiser, a campaigner. Some 600,000 citizens signed a petition to oblige politicians to declare their assets and conflicts of interest. It became law. Congress established an anti-corruption system which created new agencies and was meant to strengthen existing ones. Another law bolstered the independence of the Attorney General's office. The Peña government did its best to avoid implementing most reforms. The NGOs that championed these changes had hoped that AMLO would bring them to fruition. But he has proved a foe, not an ally. The leftist president regards groups financed by business as agents of neoliberalism. He refers to Mexicans Against Corruption and Impunity, or MCCI, a business-backed NGO, as Mexicans in favour of corruption. In part, this is just AMLO hogging the limelight but it also reflects his rejection of the NGO's thesis that the key to reducing corruption is to bolster institutions and change incentives. The morale in the movement is very pessimistic, says one campaigner. Under AMLO, the anti-corruption system has made no progress, say its architects. NGOs have filed a court challenge against his appointment of the anti-corruption prosecutor on the grounds that she is too close to him.
The revamped Attorney General's office has kept its old staff and organisational structure. AMLO prefers discretion to rules. As president-elect, he promised not to follow his predecessors in prosecuting a few high-profile wrongdoers from the previous administration. Yet he apparently changed his mind. His government has, for example, arrested Rosario Robles, a minister under Mr Peña who is accused of stealing a quarter of a billion dollars. AMLO proposes, bizarrely, to hold a referendum on whether to investigate Mr Peña and other past presidents for corruption. The government's critics are being treated less gently. In February, Guillermo Garcia Alcocer, boss of the energy regulator, complained that the government had appointed unqualified officials to his agency. Days later, prosecutors opened an investigation into suspected conflicts of interest. Mr Garcia resigned. Even more worrying is the case of Eduardo Medina Mora, a Supreme Court judge against whom AMLO has long held a grudge. The judge resigned in October this year after the chief of the government's financial intelligence unit accused him of money laundering. Reports soon emerged that bank accounts belonging to the judge and his brothers were frozen hours before his resignation, only to be unfrozen days later. Such cases create a climate of fear and chill dissent. A new law lets the government jail suspected tax dodgers before they are tried, giving it another tool to intimidate critics. AMLO's friends seem to fare better. Take Manuel Bartlett, an ally who heads the Federal Electricity Commission. MCCI claimed that he failed to declare an interest in two dozen properties worth 800 million pesos registered in the names of people close to him. AMLO called the allegation journalism at the service of conservatives. Four-fifths of government contracts are not awarded through transparent procurement procedures. Many contracts to build AMLO's pet projects are being awarded without a bidding process. The government invokes national security grounds. AMLO's administration, like most young governments, has so far produced few corruption scandals. As rivalries flare, tales of malfeasance tend to come out. A report by the Federal Auditor into government spending next year will either burnish or batter its reputation for rectitude. The handling of the investigation of Mr Bartlett may show whether it will take seriously allegations made against AMLO loyalists. None of this is likely to alter the President's approach to corruption. He would rather hand out big cheques than strengthen cheques and balances. Thanks for listening to Editor's Picks. I'm Josie Delap. In London, this is The Economist. Brought to you by Capital One, where you can open a savings account in about five minutes and earn five times the national average. Just imagine, five times more savings toward that overdue home edition, maybe even an addition on that edition. This is Banking Reimagined. What's in your wallet? Capital One and a member FDIC.